0: looking at Joshua 7 today. I'm going to read for us the first 12 verses. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out that region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do, do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, we can't understand this passage, for that matter, the book of Joshua, without a basic understanding of the devoted or accursed things. They are those things that God told the Israelites they could not possess. The devoted things, are things that must be given to the Lord. He can use them for his purposes if he so chooses, but generally the devoted things are devoted to destruction. Now before they entered Jericho, God spelled out for Israel what the devoted things were. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Everything else would be destroyed. Nothing under the ban must be found in the possession of the Israelites. For a person to possess the devoted things was to show contempt for God and his covenant. The chief danger in possessing a thing devoted to the Lord is that it would come to possess you. If a person were to take something that God had withheld, it would compromise his commitment and more basically still his affection for God and for his kingdom. Now, we think of the ban that we read about here and in Deuteronomy and elsewhere as an Old Testament thing, but there's a New Testament counterpart. Just as gold and silver and even the people of the land were under the ban in Joshua's time, sin is under the ban in our time. It's a devoted thing. Sin compromises our commitment to and our affection for God. It must therefore be devoted to God, devoted for destruction. And here's the meaning, or part of the meaning, of the biblical idea that our sins are laid on Jesus. They are devoted to destruction. We sometimes think of Jesus' atoning death simply as a means for providing us with forgiveness, but there's more to it than that. The death of Christ is richer, more profound than we know or can understand. Our sins are laid on Jesus, and He takes the accursed load under the ban with Him. The things that damage our commitment and affection to God, the things that therefore threaten our spiritual health, damage our reputation, decimate our lives, are brought to Christ for destruction. This is the meaning of Paul's shocking claim that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the ban, by becoming a curse for us. Everything in Jericho was under the ban either to be destroyed or in some way set aside from its normal use for God's purposes. Everything was devoted to God. But verse 1, the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zemri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, by the way, this is the most um, definitive genealogy of anyone in the book of Joshua. And it's of this man, who proved faithless. He took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Notice it was the Israelites. This is I'm going to spend some time on this because it's very important for us to get. It was the Israelites who acted unfaithfully, even though it was only Achan who performed the deed and his family members who concealed it. Now, the first readers of Joshua would have grasp this concept easily enough and accepted it. And so would later readers of the New Testament and for that matter, so would tribal cultures around the world today. But it's very difficult for modern Americans living in what is probably the most individualistic culture in history to grasp the idea of group solidarity. The judgment on Israel seems unfair to us because we don't recognize the unity of the people of God. That unity is real and literal. It's not metaphorical, not abstract. We really are one. What benefits one benefits all in the body of Christ. What harms one harms all. That's the idea behind Paul's statement to the Corinthians. If one part suffers, each part suffers with it. If one part's honored, each part rejoices with it. The body of Christ is one, which is why competition, whether between fellow church members or between local churches or between dom- denominations, is a kind of cancer. If one part of the body tries to grow by consuming another part of the body, the result will be illness and possibly death. And again, it's because we're connected that were spread out in different homes, in different towns, and even in different states and different countries. We're one. We are united. In Oregon's Malheur National Forest, biologists found what they think may be the world's largest organism. Its scientific name is Armalaria ostoyae, the honey mushroom. This one organism, one living organism stretches from tree root to tree root across 22,000 acres and it all started from a single microscopic spore. That spore invaded the Oregonian forest before Christ came to earth and it's been spreading ever since and killing as it goes. You can't see it from the ground. If you're standing on the ground among all the trees you won't see it but from high above you see a pattern of death The fungus spreads from tree to tree because below the surface, the root systems are connected. And wherever the fungus spread, it saps the life out of the trees. Sin is like that honey mushroom. It began in a single act of disobedience, but it spread across the entire human race because, here's the thing, humanity is all connected. And that connection is even more profound in the body of Christ. We're tied together in even more ways. The action of one person inevitably affects another because we're bound together, whether we like it or not. And since that is the case, the cure for our problems can never be individualistic. Self-help will never be enough help. We sometimes talk about receiving Jesus as our personal savior, as if we could receive Jesus as our impersonal savior. When we talk like that, there's a good side to it. We need to experience Jesus' forgiveness and power for ourselves. Not not just through our parents, not because we're part of a local church, but for ourselves and to our delight and benefit. We can experience him for ourselves. We can know him personally. But there's a bad side too. We can come to think of Jesus as my personal Savior as if he were in the same category as my personal trainer or my personal bank account. Then we get the idea that Jesus belongs to me in a way that actually isolates me from you. And we add to the confusion by thinking of the church as a place for individual Christians to attend rather than a people that share one life, an organism, a body, the body of Christ. The journalist Sebastian Younger followed a platoon of U.S. soldiers for over a year in Afghanistan and then wrote about it. And he said he didn't realize beforehand how connected those soldiers were. This is what he wrote. Margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had a kind of de facto authority to reprimand others, in some cases even officers. And because combat can hinge on details, there was nothing in a soldier's daily routine that fell outside the group's purview. Once I watched, he says, a private accost another private whose bootlaces were trailing on the ground. Not that he cared what it looked like, but if something happened out there, and out there everything happened suddenly, the guy with the loose laces couldn't be count on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life he was risking, not just his own. There was no such thing as personal safety out there. What happened to you happened to everyone. And that is true within the church. To a degree we have not even comprehended. And it's so hard for us to remember that in a culture that places so much stress on individuality. That mindset is everywhere around us. Do any of you remember the basis on which the high court legalized, the the legal basis on which the high court legalized the practice of abortion? On the basis of a perceived right to privacy that they found in the Constitution. That would not have been possible had we been less individualistic and more connected as a people. We read books on self-actualization, self-improvement, self-realization, all with the emphasis on self. Even our vocabulary betrays us. We take personal days. We personalize our license plates and our pens and our monogram our shirts We play up rights and we downplay responsibilities more than any culture in history. And when we're pressed, we lash out. It's nobody's business but my own. But we who belong to Christ can never say that. We are connected to each other. Look across the room at the old lady sitting four rows up by the aisle. Look at the high school senior down the row from you, If you and they belong to Christ, you are connected at the root. You and they have the same life flowing through you. We're connected. What I do in the privacy of my home affects what we do in the common worship of the church. Your relationships at work affect your relationships in the church. How you treat your spouse impacts how we teach Sunday school. Gossip whispered in your ear affects the praise that we raise to the roof. We're not just an abstract organization of individuals that comes together on Sunday. We're a living organism that shares a common life, eternal life, Jesus' life. So if we become secretive and start hiding things in our lives from the people closest to us, from our brothers and sisters like Achan did, it's a clear sign that something is wrong. And something bad is about to happen. Remember what Jesus said? There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. But Achan probably thought that no one else would be heard. What he did was nobody else's business but his own. He somehow justified his behavior. You know what? We can justify absolutely anything. We are remarkably good at it. The question has always been, will God justify us, not whether we can justify some action. They can somehow justified his behavior and told himself that no one else would ever know. And so he took the devoted things, the things that belonged to God alone, As I was thinking about this, I realized there's some interesting similarities between the Old Testament story of Achan and the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira. In both cases, the people of God were on the cutting edge of something new in their history. Here, they just entered the promised land. There in the New Testament story, they just entered the church and were beginning to function as the body of Christ for the first time. In both stories the faithless faithless individuals who were part of a community of God's people, neither they nor their sins could be isolated from the larger community. In both cases, there were unbelieving people around them who were watching them intently. In both cases, punishment was swift and severe because, I believe, the people involved were ground zero for a disease that threatened the entire community. And in both cases, unfaithfulness involved taking something that belonged only to God, taking the devoted things. Achan took silver, gold, clothing, and clothing. Ananias and Sapphira took glory, both belonged to God alone. Now, in our story, Joshua has no idea that the well-being of the community has been compromised. So, in verse two, he sent men up from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven to the east of Bethel, and told them go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, "Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't weary all the people, for only a few men are there." Now Joshua didn't know it, but his people were in the same dangerous condition in which Samson would find himself years later. Judges 16:20 tells us that Samson's in great danger, but he thought, oh, "I'll go out as before." And then there are these haunting words. But he did not know the Lord had left him. But he did not know the Lord had left him. See, it's possible to go on as usual. Do the things we've done before. Teach Sunday school class. Preach sermons. And not know that the Lord has left us. So it was for Israel at Ai. Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up But they were routed by the men of Ai, Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Prior to this episode, we've read it over and over again, it was the hearts of Israel's enemies that melted. Now it was the hearts of the people of Israel. And it happened because the community's relationship to God had been damaged by the private and personal actions of one man and his family. Now look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes. That was a sign in their culture of strong emotion and grief. And he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So in the midst of this catastrophe, and it's not just the 36 men have died, this is catastrophic. The whole future hangs in the balance now. Joshua prays. That's a good thing, right? Doesn't James say, is any of you in trouble? Let him pray. But interestingly, God does not give Joshua a gold star for praying. Instead, he says to him, what are you doing down on your face, Joshua? Prayer is commanded by God and it's good to pray at all times. But prayer can never be a substitute for obedience. I've known people who think of it that way. Through lack of trust, through lack of interest, through lack of obedience, they've gotten themselves into a bad place, and then they start praying. But prayer isn't magic. It's communication. Two-way communication, as we see here. It doesn't take the place of obedience. Rather, it prepares us for obedience. It doesn't work to ask God to act on our behalf while we're refusing to act in obedience to Him. Now, Joshua wasn't trying to substitute prayer for obedience. He had every intention of obeying God. He just didn't know what was going on. As soon as he did, he followed God's instructions, discovered the man who'd broken the covenant with God and his people, and had him put to death. Now, that's an extreme response. But I think it was extreme because Achan was a kind of typhoid Mary to his family and to his nation. He was the willing carrier of a disease that would destroy God's people. A disease that had to be stopped. Now look at verse 11. This is the Lord speaking. Israel sinned. They violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, here's the thing. By possessing what was banned, Achan placed himself under the ban. Because he took what was dedicated to destruction, verse 11 tells us, he became dedicated to destruction. Now, that has implications for us. God's imposed the ban on sin, sin must be brought to God, it's devoted to destruction. Which explains a little of that extraordinary truth that the Lord laid on him, that is on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. If you will willfully retain your sin, I'm not talking about struggling with sin, falling uh, into temptation. I'm talking about willfully retaining sins instead of laying them on Jesus. If you cling to your sins, hide them in your heart the way Achan hid them under his tent... They'll still be destroyed, but some part of you will go with them. Just as part of Israel, Achan and his family went with the devoted things to destruction. Achan's choice had grave repercussions. Not only was Israel defeated in battle for the first time, this is the first time it's ever happened, their defeat emboldened their enemies. (coughs) But all was not lost. There's still good news. After confession was made and the covenant with God was restored, Israel was again able to receive guidance from God and to succeed with their plans. A failure is not the end of the story. If it were, all of our stories would have come to an end by now. If we are unfaithful to God, there's going to be a price to pay. For the Israelites, things were harder now, and battles were tougher Because they broke the covenant, but they weren't abandoned. Neither will God abandon us. Look down at verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tents, and all that he had to the valley of Accor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? Accor is Hebrew for trouble. They went to the valley of trouble. All of us have been there from time to time. Sometimes we've wandered into it by accident. Sometimes we've been forced into it by circumstances. And sometimes, like Achan, we've stubbornly headed into it of our own accord. But in the valley of trouble, there is a door of hope. When we quit forging our own path, and turn and look to the Lord, our eyes will be met by a strange sight. In the dark valley stands a door into a bright future. Through the prophet Hosea, God has promised I will make the valley of Akkor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. We don't find the door of hope by looking for it, we find it by looking to the Lord. He as he himself once said, is the door, the door of hope. So if you find yourself in the valley of trouble today, and look at our prayer list, there are many of us in the valley of trouble. Some of us are there by accident. Some of us are there by the deeds of another, and some of us are there because we stubbornly entered it of our own accord. But if you find yourself in the valley of trouble today, look to the Lord and you will see a door of hope. Give yourself to him and go through that door. Now let's pray. Lord, in the valley of trouble, like Joshua, all the pain and fear comes flowing out of us. We can lose our grasp, but don't lose your grasp on us. Calm us and enable us to look to you again and open for us a door of hope. right in the midst of our trouble. And do this, Lord, for the sake of our Master, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.